Thank you for tuning into this special presentation of the novel The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek, read for you in its entirety on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. The Dead Kids Club is what I like to call an everyman thriller, ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. It follows a divorced couple after the death of their son and asks the question, what would you do if the killer of your child got away with it? How far would you go to get the justice you deserve? the revenge you need, and how will you know when you're done? The complete book will be serialized over the next several months, between my usual short story episodes. I caution you that unlike most of the content on this podcast, The Dead Kids Club is a gritty thriller depicting scenes of graphic violence and mild sexual content, so if you're sensitive to that type of material, you've been warned. Please visit bedtimestories.studio to subscribe to my mailing list so you don't miss any chapters of this unabridged audio presentation and news about my upcoming thriller, The Tenth Ride. And now, part two of The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek. Nine. A woman to the left of the brown stands up. She does not have the rosy cheerful facade that Barb has. Instead, she's quiet yet confident. There is no husband by her side. My son and husband were on a vacation, just the two of them. A father and son thing. My boy loved to fish. I never got it. Too boring for me. But my husband was thrilled to have a fishing buddy. They spent two weeks on a remote lake in Canada. It was Todd's dream trip. He was so excited about it. Two weeks in the wild. Sleeping in a log cabin. All day in a boat. No cell phones, no plumbing. I never thought a ten-year-old could be so enthusiastic about something that didn't involve electricity. Some in the group laugh. I tried to enjoy myself while they were gone. The house was finally clean for more than a day, and I had some girlfriends over to watch some chick flicks, and I was able to take a bath without worrying about being interrupted. When they got back to the base station, Todd called to tell me how many fish he'd caught. Steve emailed me about a hundred photos. I still had a two-day drive to get home, but hearing his voice and seeing how happy he was holding up a two-foot trout. She pauses to gather herself. I got a call two days later from a hospital. They wanted me to come up right away. Steve and Todd had stopped at a little roadside diner for a couple of burgers. As much as Todd loved to fish, I don't think he liked eating it every day. The meat they got was tainted. The owner of the restaurant had been sighted several times before, but never got around to fixing his freezer. Todd hung on till I got there. His last words to me were, Did you see my fish, Mom? Steve's last words were, I'm sorry. The doctors told me if they had gotten help sooner, they might have made it. She takes a deep breath. They were so anxious to make it home that they weren't going to let a stomach ache slow them down. Steve tried Pepto-Bismol, but at the motel that night when Todd had bloody diarrhea, he knew it was much more serious. He tried to drive both of them to a hospital. She tears up. But he was too weak, and he ended up driving into a ditch. A deputy sheriff found them about six hours later and called an ambulance. The bacteria had destroyed their kidneys, and by the time they got to the hospital, other organs were starting to fail. I'm glad he was with his dad, that they got to do something he loved. But damn it, it didn't need to happen. My husband and I had struggled for years to get pregnant. Todd was the product of three rounds of in vitro fertilization. Steve used to call him our science experiment. He used to joke about the lab mixing up the sperm because he couldn't figure out how a guy who barely made it out of high school math could be the dad of such a bright kid but you could see it in their eyes. 
When they both laughed at the same goofy TV show or cheered their favorite sports teams, they were the same. Best friends without losing that special father-son bond. The smile left over from her nostalgic reminiscence fades. I drove to that roadside diner to confront that man, that killer. She turns to her left, looks past Barb at Brian. Here comes the hate. Some of the others nod. He had no remorse. He didn't even apologize. Told me there was nothing wrong with his food. People ate it all the time. I found out he was poker buddies with the sheriff. The deputy told me there was nothing they could do. He's just sitting up there at that hole-in-the-wall diner waiting to kill someone else. And my boy and my husband. She doesn't finish and doesn't need to. She just sits down and accepts a comforting hug from Barb. 10. The next story comes from a young couple whose infant was a victim of obvious and blatant malpractice. Even substantial punitive damages in a lawsuit did not end his medical career, only caused their hate for his carelessness to fester. Two more of the remaining survivor parents lost children to drunk drivers like us, and another to a fatal dog attack. Two others lost their little ones to cancer. They were the ones who seemed uncomfortable when anyone spoke of hate for the killers of their children. After all, they had no one to blame, unless you count God, and there was no point in that. Another single woman lost her two children to a psychotic ex-husband, who burned them alive, but escaped with merely the loss of his hands and eyes. And the last couple of the evening lost their 12-year-old daughter to gang violence. A stray bullet pierced their living room window and hit her in the neck while she was watching her favorite teen comedy on TV. The killer of their daughter was known, but no witnesses would come forward. And the district attorney, likely the same weak-kneed jellyfish that prosecuted Vitaly, refused to indict, let alone bring it to a trial. After the stories are done, the gathering transforms into something more of a social event. Brian makes a point of engaging me in conversation, finds out I'm in IT, and naturally has an ongoing computer problem to tell me about. When we come to a pause in the small talk, I ask him about the old man, still sitting off to the side, contemplating his liver spots. Doesn't he have a story? Brian nods. That's old Harold. He does have one, but it's his to share, and I suppose he'll tell it when he's ready. And that's about all he's willing to say on the subject. So what do you guys do here when there's not someone new to do the whole history thing with, I ask. Mostly this. Barb gets us started. We recognize anniversaries, that kind of thing. And we just hang out. Some of the guys get together outside the group. If you're a poker player, there's always a seat available for another sucker. I mean, player. He elbows me in the side with a deep chuckle. Maybe. That's as far as I'm willing to go. Listen, he says. I know we're supposed to let you share when you're ready, but... Truth is, I recognize you guys from the news. Your son was killed by that mob guy, Vitaly. Then he adds, putting a hand on my shoulder. I know how you feel. Thanks, I say, and leave it at that. The people in this room are the only ones who can say that and not leave me thinking they are total idiots. I find Rebecca and we exchange pleasantries with some of the other parents. They are onto something in this group. It is good to be around people who know the specter you live under when you lose a child. It allows you to feel at ease, like you don't have to wait for someone to say something inadvertently insensitive or unnecessarily compassionate. It's about as close to nice as any of us can get. 11. Over the next few days, I spend most of my time thinking about how we're going to pull this off. I need to know everything we can about our target, find some way to spy on him without it interfering with our continuing alibi. We're watching a TV show about people who bid on the contents of storage lockers, ones that have been abandoned for some reason or another, the bills unpaid, and the hidden treasures within auctioned off. 
In one unit, a couple discovers a spy kit, complete with a remote video recording unit that can store video discreetly and be retrieved later. That would be perfect, Rebecca offers. If we can plant cameras around this place, record what he does, then just pick up the video. It is a good idea. The trick would be how we can buy it without leaving a trail. If anyone digs deep enough, they'd wonder why we'd bought surveillance equipment, I say. Could you have it shipped to your office? There are a hundred people working there. If a package shows up with a name no one knows, what happens? Probably sits in the mailroom until someone decides to send it back. Could you get in and take it? I don't see how. Plus there would be a record of it delivered to my office. Maybe we could find a pawn shop that sells that kind of stuff. They keep records too. And probably have cameras of their own. I stare at the TV screen as I ponder how we can acquire something anonymously. We can steal it, I announce, from a detective agency. Brilliant. Let's go rip off a private eye. I'm sure they won't have any means or desire to track us down. Rebecca responds sarcastically. No, we steal it from them before they know they have it. What are you talking about? Rebecca asks. I lay out my plan for her. We've been squirreling away cash for a few weeks now. There should be enough to get the equipment we'll need. It's the first big risk we'll be taking in this endeavor, but by no means the last. Twelve. When I get to work, I lock myself in the server room, pull up my virtual machine, and anonymously shop for the equipment we'll need. The devices are remarkably affordable for what they are. Lipstick-sized cameras with enough memory for up to 24 hours of compressed video and Wi-Fi radios to wirelessly transmit the data. I order six of them and request that they be shipped to the address of the private investigations firm that is on the ninth floor of my company's building and pay for it using a PayPal account that has been funded by auctions on eBay, the money going through several imaginary buyers and sellers I had set up. I request the UPS shipping method and get a tracking number a few hours later. The order is timed to arrive on a day that Rebecca can be in the building. I check the tracking information several times a day. There is an option to request a specific delivery window, and I select an early one when I know there is very little activity at the investigation firm. On the expected delivery day, Rebecca is in the ladies' room between the elevators and the firm's office. From the break room in my office, I can see the delivery trucks arriving and entering the loading bay. I send a coded text message to Rebecca. The rest is up to her. We agree not to contact each other immediately after the pickup. It's not until I arrive home that evening that she shows me the box and the covert cameras inside. She tells me about her part of the mission. So, I stepped out of the ladies' room and stood in front of the office door. When I heard the elevator ding, I put my hand on the doorknob then looked behind me at the UPS guy. I gave him a smile. He smiled back. I asked him, Is that the package from Covert Systems? He checked the return address and nodded. Great, I tell him. I need to get that over to the surveillance site. He handed me the electronic clipboard thing. I scribbled something illegible. He asked for my last name, typed in the made-up one I gave him, and he wished me a good day. I started opening the package as he disappeared into the elevator. Then I took the stairs down and out to the parking lot. I got into my car and drove straight here. I don't know if I took a breath the whole time. It was kind of exciting. I connect one of the cameras to a charger, and we conduct a little experiment. She hides it on a shelf in the living room, and I use my old laptop to create an ad hoc Wi-Fi network to pull the video from the device. It works perfectly. We spend a few hours making sure all the devices are fully charged. That night, we take a long walk in the overcast gloom foretelling a coming storm. We eventually wander out into the street where Vitaly lives. It's a fairly modest home, a sprawling, ranch-style house, but well-appointed. 
Rebecca takes in a deep breath and assumes an air of calm that I try to match. We don't see his car either on the street or in his driveway. There are no lights on inside his house. There are no neighbors out. Good fortune is on our side. I reach up into a tree in front of his house and place a camera secured with a lump of putty aimed at his front door that will also capture activity in his garage. Then Rebecca and I each walk around separate sides of the house and look for other spots to plant the remaining cameras, to give us a glimpse around and inside his house. We meet in the rear. There is a gate that exits into the alley, and we walk through it like people who belong there. The cameras have motion detectors and will only record when there is something happening. According to the instructions, the battery should last a week in that mode. We must have patience. Things are going so well. 13. Sunday, we go to church. It is the Lutheran parish where we sent Nick for preschool. The congregation is small enough to notice a couple new faces, and the mother of one of Nick's preschool classmates recognizes Rebecca. She greets us, then offers her empty words of condolence, and introduces us to some others. No one asks why we are there, but it is clear they assume we are looking for spiritual solace. After the sermon, the pastor introduces himself. He remembers Nick from the preschool Christmas pageant, and as one would expect a minister to do, strikes the right tone by recalling a fond memory, but not pressing the issue. I hope we'll see more of you, he adds. I assure him he will. There is a small reception we get pulled into in the basement. The room is divided into men on one side and women on the other. The preschool mom takes Rebecca aside, and one of the deacons takes it upon himself to introduce me to the inner circle. They talk mostly of when it will be warm enough to return to the golf course and ask if I play. The situation and conversation strikes me as a replay of the latter half of the support group. Only these people are not burdened by the death of their children. These are the people Rebecca and I might have been if Vitaly had never been born. 14. Two days later, I returned to Vitaly's house with a laptop I acquired from a thrift shop. I had wiped and reformatted the hard drive and installed a hardened version of Linux developed for security nets. I risked parking on the opposite side of the street to scan for the signals from the cameras. Most of them are easy to lock in on, and I quickly download the footage. The rest of them require me to make a slow drive down the alley. It seems none of them have been discovered. At home, I use the laptop to sort the videos by timestamp, and we go about the painstaking task of logging all the activity the cameras have captured. The work is wordless. I bring up each segment of footage. Rebecca writes it down on paper. When we are done, we transfer our written notes into an encrypted spreadsheet on the laptop and burn the paper then flush the ashes down the toilet. Overkill, I know, but we are as careful as I can think to be. So far, our picture of Vitaly is getting more and more detailed. I have what information we knew about him from the trial and the events surrounding it, and I was able to hack into his Facebook account quite easily. His password was not very original. The letters on his license plate. C-H-K-M-G-N-T. Chick Magnet. We learned quite a lot from the videos. He has a job of sorts at one of his father's restaurants, the kind where he can come and go as he pleases and not screw things up too much. He drives a black Maserati, which he keeps in his unusually sparse garage. He doesn't do his own yard work, so he doesn't have any of the typical lawn care equipment or really anything except some golf clubs to crowd the space allocated to his car. His day starts around noon. He has a gym in his home with a variety of equipment where he works out after his morning cup of espresso. Around two or three in the afternoon, he heads out to work. He gets home well after midnight, and on one of the nights we recorded, he brought a girl with him, but she left around two in the morning by cab. There's an alarm company sign in the flower beds by his front door. 
That makes me second-guess doing it in his house. But a little snooping reveals that the company named on the sign went out of business a year ago. Perhaps it was left over from the previous owners. Regardless, it is likely the extent of his security system. I'm sure he thinks that anyone who would contemplate ripping him off knows who his father is. It wouldn't dare try. In the videos, whenever he returns home, he doesn't unlock his door, he just opens it and walks in. We agree that we should watch him for a couple more weeks, but no more. Watching him enjoying his life, not a care in the world, makes us all the more anxious to end it. 15. Flipping through the latest issue of Popular Science, I come across an ad for a gadget that catches my eye. It is a GPS tracking device that can be hidden on a car and digitally record its comings and goings. I show it to Rebecca and we discuss whether it would be worth risking another third-party delivery to acquire one. Probably not. But maybe we could check to see if something similar was available to buy for cash somewhere in the city. At work the next day, I use my encrypted virtual machine and a privacy-focused search engine to look for the device and come up with a list of retail stores that might sell it. I memorize the names and addresses of a few prospects that are outside my normal sphere of activity, but not too far away. On my way home, I drive by the first one and park a couple of blocks down the street. I walk back to the small electronics store, browse the aisles for about ten minutes, and come up empty. I don't want to make myself stand out by asking for it, so I casually walk out and head back to my car. The second stop is a car stereo shop. I'm not as excited about my prospects there, but walk in anyway, and am rewarded by a display of the devices front and center. I pick one up along with a pair of windshield wipers, pay cash, and politely decline the clerk's offer to have someone replace my wiper blades for me. When I get home, Rebecca and I discuss the best way to plant the device on Vitaly's car. He has a private spot behind the restaurant where he spends his evenings, pretending to work. Like his home, it is within walking distance of Rebecca's apartment. We decide to wait until after it gets dark. I plug the device, which consists of a featureless black box with a strong magnet on one side and the USB port on the other, into the laptop I use to download the surveillance camera video. Rebecca comes out of the kitchen, wiping her hands on a towel. I want to talk about how you're going to do it, she says. I know what she means. She wants to discuss the exact method by which I'm going to end Vitaly's life. She has developed a fascination in this part of the plan, perhaps unhealthily so, but I can't blame her. The whole point of this exercise is to bring justice to our son, and that justice is Vitaly's death. So I satisfy her morbid need. I take an ice pick, I say plainly, and stab him in the heart. Right here, I point to a spot on my chest to the left of my sternum. There's a mob killer who has that M.O. It's on that crime writer's website. I walk up to Rebecca, take her hand and shape the fingers as if they're holding a weapon and grab her wrist and guide it to my chest to demonstrate. She draws in a shocked breath when the imaginary weapon pierces my chest. Then he sort of swirls it around to make sure the heart is sufficiently damaged to cause a quick death. I guide her hand in a circular motion around the point of penetration, then pull her hand away from me and turn it sideways. He waits a moment to make sure the victim is dead. Then I guide her hand quickly toward my temple and make the same circular motion there just in case there's any life left in him. He pierces the temple and scrambles the brains as well. Each wound is usually fatal on its own. Doing both makes sure the target is dead. I let go of her wrist, but her hand stays pressed to the side of my head. I can see in her eyes that she's not seeing me. She's seeing Vitaly, or rather his lifeless corpse. Can you do it? She asks. Yes, I answer without hesitation. What if you can't? 
I can, and I will. I promise you. When the time comes, I'll drive that ice pick into his chest without hesitation, and then I'll finish him off in the head. I promise. Swear on Nick's soul. I swear. She seems convinced, and her hand uncurls from around the imaginary ice pick and falls to her side. She takes a deep, satisfied breath, then returns to the kitchen. 16. We don't speak of it further during dinner. In fact, we don't talk at all. As I clear the table and load the dishwasher, Rebecca changes into a dark running suit. I check the GPS tracker to make sure it's charged, and that it's set to automatically track any movement, and that the internal clock is set to the correct time and time zone. Everything is ready. We have the group again tomorrow, Rebecca mentions. I know. I kind of like it. Me too. I slip into a dark jacket and slide the tracker into my pocket. We walk outside. It's cooler than I expect. Rebecca takes my hand as we start our mile-and-a-half walk to the restaurant. On the way, we bump into Nancy, the woman who was friendly to us at church, walking with her son. Hi, you two, she says with a smile. Nice night for a walk. Yes, Rebecca answers. My goodness, look at you, Ian. You've grown. Ian wipes ice cream from the corners of his mouth with the sleeve of his jacket. Ian, what have I told you about that? Nancy chastises, then hands him one of the paper napkins she has tucked away for such occasions. Sorry, Mom, he says as he takes the napkin and wipes at his now clean mouth. Boys, Rebecca says simply with a smile. You know, I wanted to ask you, she continues, changing the subject. I saw a sign on the bulletin board at the church about volunteers for the bake sale. Do you have anything to do with that? Are you still looking for people and cookies? I'm exactly the person to talk to, and yes, we're always looking for both. I can call you later and give you all the details. Tomorrow would be better. I'm off and will be home during the day. Terrific. Is the number still the same from the preschool list? A fleeting panic crosses Nancy's face. She assumes that awkward, embarrassed look people get when they realize their words are a reminder to Rebecca and me that we've lost our child. We are fairly numb to such feelings at this point, and their attempts to compensate for a slight we do not perceive is more offensive than the one they imagine. The story we might tell at the group the following night. One our fellow grieving parents will understand. Yes, it's the same, Rebecca says, quickly diffusing the situation. I'll talk to you tomorrow, then. Okay, good night. Good night, I add. Ian waves, his mouth once again occupied with devouring the ice cream cone in his hand. We each continue on our way. A few minutes later, Rebecca gives my hand a squeeze, and I notice a tear falling down her cheek. I wish we could kill him tonight. She says, we can't. I know. 17. We reach the restaurant and walk around the corner to the back. On our first pass, there are a couple of busboys hanging out by the dumpster near where Vitaly's car is parked. We stroll down the alley. They take notice of us in passing, but then continue their conversation and smoking their cigarettes. We walk around the block and enter the alley again. This time, I proceed alone, take off my jacket, and drape it over my arm in the hope that if the busboys see me again, they won't recognize me as half of the couple that just walked past. The busboys are gone. I scan the back of the restaurant for security cameras and check Vitaly's car to make sure there is no alarm engaged. Everything is clear. This hubris works to our advantage. I whistle a signal to Rebecca, and she continues to look out as I slide under the back of Vitaly's Maserati and attach the tracker to an exposed piece of steel. It clings tightly, and I slide back out, give Rebecca a nod, and we continue our stroll down the alley. My heart races. 
Rebecca seems calm and collected. Are you all right? She asks. I nod. Just adrenaline. She smiles at me as we make our way back onto the main street and head in the direction of her apartment. I slip my jacket back on, and Rebecca slips her arm around mine, leaning her head against my shoulder for a moment, and we finish our walk in silence. It's not lost on me how perverse our relationship has become. We have formed a bond centered around revenge. We spend our time planning the murder of the man who murdered our son. At some point during this journey, there's going to be blood on our hands. Vitaly's blood. Rebecca looks up at me as if reading my thoughts. I smile at her. She squeezes my arm, reassured. 18. My boss calls me into his office. The first thing that comes to mind is that he's discovered my secret virtual machine and has somehow been tracking my carefully hidden online activities. This is, of course, ridiculous. I know what I'm doing and have covered my tracks completely. Everything I've done dead ends on a server somewhere in Finland that guarantees a completely anonymous proxy. Some Finns, at least, really value their online privacy. Still, as illogical as my concerns may be, I can't help wondering if there isn't something I have missed. Have a seat, he offers. I sit in one of the pair of chairs in front of his desk. Is anything wrong, I ask, because that's what I would ask even if I wasn't planning a revenge killing in my company's server room. No, not at all. Quite the opposite. We're really very happy with the way things are working out. I want to offer you a full-time position again. You can pick up right where you left off. Seniority, vacation, pay grade, benefits... We'll call the gap a leave of absence. I've gotten approval from the CIO. He was glad to hear you're back on track. I feel back on track. It's good to be back at work. I mean, some days it's still not too easy to get out of bed, but I'm glad I have this place. There are good people here. There are, he agrees. There's a pause. I understand if you need time to think about it. Oh, goodness, no. I don't need any time. Absolutely. I'd love to come back. That's what a normal non-homicidal guy would say, isn't it? Yes, thank you. He rises and offers his hand. I stand and shake it, smiling appreciatively. Great. HR will have some paperwork for you, and as of Monday, you'll be a regular employee again. That's great. Thank you so much. By the way, Sally and I are still waiting for you and Rebecca to accept that dinner invitation. Soon, I promise. We're still in, I guess, a kind of second honeymoon phase. He smiles knowingly. Well, don't want to step on that, but don't put it off too long or Sally will have my head. You got it, boss. As he walks me to the door, he asks a few perfunctory questions about the projects I'm working on, and I give him a few ideas for improvements in some of the automated processes. That makes him happy. Just to reassure myself, I return to the server room and casually look around. My paranoia that security cameras have been added without my knowledge is laid to rest. It seems I have indeed genuinely earned their trust and my job back not some sort of trap to stop our plan. Regardless, I stay off my virtual machine for the rest of the day. 19. At group, there are a few members who we did not meet the previous meeting and we get their obligatory testimony. First as a couple whose son was the victim of another drunk driver, an irresponsible middle-aged woman who actually drove her own kid to school with a .14 blood alcohol level. Then on her way home, she raced at 50 miles per hour through the school zone and hit their child while he was riding his bike to the same school. She got an expensive lawyer and probation. The other is another single woman, Joan, who's in her late 60s. Joan's husband had passed away earlier that year, and she seemed happy that he was with their daughter, who had died of an alcohol and drug overdose incurred during a sorority initiation. 
The daughter had passed over 30 years ago, but Joan didn't find the group until 20-some years later. Barb asks if there's anyone who wants to talk about anything that happened over the past week that they might want to share. Rebecca considers for a moment telling the story of Nancy and her family, but then breathes a sigh of relief when Amy, the woman who lost her son and husband to acute food poisoning, speaks up. I drove up there last weekend, she begins, to the roadside diner where it happened. Every time I tell the story here, I get the urge to go back and see if he's out of business yet, or better, dead. The restaurant is still there. There's a sign out front, one of those chalkboard things that fold out, and scribble on it was, Best Burgers in the State. I parked on the shoulder across from the place and fantasized about going up to the gas station back a ways, getting a can of gas, dowsing that sign and the grease-soaked shack he calls a restaurant, and lighting the whole thing on fire. I even imagined him running out, wrapped in flames, screaming for someone to put him out, screaming in pain. He did come out, sadly not on fire, and noticed my car parked there and me staring at him through the glass. I know he recognized me because a little while later a deputy sheriff drove up behind me and walked up to my car window. He urged me to move along. I told him I had every right to be parked there. He gave me some baloney about shoulder parking not allowed on county roads but I pointed out the two beat-up trucks parked on the shoulder by the restaurant. He suggested that I move along anyway, saying I saw Buck. That's the guy's name, Buck. I can fuck you very much, Buck Cooper, for killing my family. How Buck might take my presence there personal and do something like take a bat to my headlights or slash my tires. I got the distinct impression that Buck had done that before, and that the deputy was sincerely concerned for my safety, not Cooper's complaint. So I promised him I'd move on. He got back into his car and waited until I started mine up and drove away. I thought about going back, but I don't think I could have stood another moment of knowing he was there, breathing, eating, living. Barb pats Amy on the knee. Amy looks directly at her. I'm sorry, Barb. It's another hate day for me. I wish he was dead. God forgive me, but I wish he was a charred skeleton by the side of the road. You can't think that way, dear, Barb tells her. How could I not? How can you not? I try to forgive. Forgive? You forgive the creep who killed your daughter? I said I try to forgive. God hasn't opened my heart that wide yet. I couldn't even try, Amy adds. She turns and scans the other faces in the room. Can any of you? The cancer parents avoid her gaze, but the others meet her cold, determined stare head-on, silently agreeing with her, sharing her frustration and passion. When her eyes pass over Rebecca and me, she seems to pause for a moment, perhaps sensing kindred spirits and the desire for deadly revenge. Barb steers the group to more mundane topics, and at the appointed hour we break up into little grouplets. Somehow Rebecca and I find ourselves bound to Barb and Brian, and the new drunk driver parents. I'm horrible with names and tend to label people by the characteristics that define them in my mind. Drunk driver parents they would be, even after I pulled Brian aside to have him refresh my memory as to their names. Sorry about Amy, he says. No need, I answer, then add. I know how she feels. Mm, yes, he responds. But imagine what would happen if we all went around killing everyone who did us wrong. Not everyone, I offer. Just the ones who kill our children. Brian nods. I sense that like Amy, like all of us, his hate days are more than he's willing to admit to, especially to Barb. During the evening, Rebecca breaks away from Barb and the drunk driver parent's mom and shares a moment with Amy in a corner. Their brief conversation ends in a tearful embrace. On the way home, I ask her what she talked to Amy about. Just mom stuff, she answers. I don't press the matter further.
Thank you for listening to the Dead Kids Club on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. If you are enjoying this free presentation, I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or Audible and sign up for my email list at bedtimestories.studio. Make sure you rate and review on the apps that allow it and share this podcast with anyone you know who enjoys audiobooks. You can also show your support by purchasing this or any of my other books in paperback or ebook editions on Amazon or the complete audiobooks on Audible. And lastly, if you're a fan of paranormal mysteries, I hope you'll also check out the award-winning Rainy Day Investigation book series, co-written with Arnold Rundick and Lloyd Auerbach, at rainyanddae.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. Thanks again, and all the very best.